I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe strongly that human beings are tribal animals and we do our best, we fulfill ourselves in the foremost ways we express ourselves As the beings we are, we do all these things when we live in community. Small numbers of people who know each other, definitely by name or at least by face if it's a larger community. I hope you consider that. I hope you look at your life and think of it in terms of who you have in your community and how you might want to build your community. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we have the privilege of having one of the world's foremost scientists with us, Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris. I've mentioned before that we've gone through a 50-year period of political repression, suppression really, of psychedelic science, and we're coming out of it. 50 years in a wasteland, 50 years not quite a wasteland, that may be too dramatic, but it felt like it because I went through it. And during that time, there were persistent scientists who kept pushing at the government for a little permission. Let us have a little, give us a little crumb. Let us do a little something. And these were courageous people because there are areas in the sciences which if you study can be career killers. Psychedelic science was one of them. Hypnosis is one of them, and human sexuality is another one, well known for being career killers. But Robin and a small cohort of people around the world persisted. And so the man we have with us today has done groundbreaking science, groundbreaking research. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Robin. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you. Robin, um, what do we do to get you to the United States after you're having this magnificent career in England and you're teaching at Imperial College? You're at the height of academia. How, tell us a little on the personal side. <laughs> How'd you make it across the moat? Well, you know, I always felt welcome over here. You know, a lot of a lot of nice words, a lot of nice people I met uh, that um, tempted me over and um a few key people helped make it a reality uh the likes of adam ghazali helped bring me into ucsf uh, michael pollan who i got to know quite well um around the time he was writing his book and afterwards i put a little feeler out saying you know michael if ever anything pops up in your neck of the woods i'd quite fancy it and and um Things started happening around that. So, and of course, the promise of of uh, sunny California had uh, a fair bit to do with it as well. And it was, I imagine, a major logistical change in terms of building a laboratory after you spent time and built the the systems that you wanted uh, in England. Correct. 
That is correct. Yeah, it's taken time, but we're dosing now. I'm pleased to say it's taken about two years. Uh, I know even from colleagues in the US that it can take that long to set up essentially clinical trials, clinical studies with psychedelics. So, yep, it's a long road to even get the approvals to do the work, but we're through most of that now. We're certainly uh, dosing at the moment. But uh, things are very good here. Things were good in London, but I was very fortunate to have a great team and we developed some momentum and I could pass things over to my colleagues and they've carried things going. So there are still trials that I um, very much helped set up that are still running, that are going to splash into the public domain probably next year. Um, So that feels good as well. Robin, research has been happening more recently, as you know, because you've been leading it. There's a concern in the field of psychedelic science. I'm sure you've heard about it. I know you're aware of it. That in our enthusiasm for this renaissance, after half a century of suppression of science, there's a concern, one, that it may catch on too quickly with the public, and we'll see people using these psychedelics in ways that'll bring back echoes of the 1960s, which became a scary time, mostly because of the media, not because of what was actually going on, but they st- the end result was scary times for people uh, with regard. So there's one concern about the public, and then there's also a concern about even those who are going to be treated by professional people and the trained guides. Um, And the concern there is, to what extent are we in the psychedelic science community going to be transparent about what the pharmaceutical companies call side effects, uh, which is a sanitized way of saying unwanted complications of medicine, which is what I call it, or adverse effects, right? They do everything they can to hide those And the question for us is, how transparent are we going to be about unwanted complications? And you've done some research in that very area, and I'd like you to talk about that research right now, please. Sure. Well, gosh, uh, you know, um, it's uh, these are potent interventions, and we started doing them doing these, giving these interventions in vulnerable populations personally um, around 20, let's see, 2014, 15, we started our mm-hmm. research in treatment-resistant depression. And um, I'm not sure people would necessarily be aware of it, but that was the first trial, at least published, that was a trial with a, in this modern era with a psychedelic therapy in a population of people with a diagnosis of depression across the board. There was the cancer work, pioneering work by the likes of Charlie Grobe that had been published already in End of Life Distress, where there were anxiety and depressive symptoms, but they weren't a cohort of people all with clinically diagnosed um, major depressive disorder and and certainly not treatment-resistant depression where they'd all failed um, at least two different medications and most of them psychotherapy in the current depressive episode. So 
it was a tough population and we went in with um, high ideals, as is often the case, um, and and generally got very good results um, on average, um, very good in terms of getting people into remission who weren't responding to anything else. Uh, high proportion of people meeting criteria for response in such a difficult to treat population. However, uh, to more directly answer your question, you know, averaging doesn't capture the complex cases, and we had some. You know, we had. Let's see, we had. I mean, one individual um, jumps to mind uh, who. Um, in his second session, after a relatively positive first session with 10 milligrams psilocybin, going to the second session a week later, 25 milligrams. And um, he had an experience that it took a little bit of time for him to really describe what had happened. But he felt he'd had a recollection of, of some physical abuse uh, from his father um, trying to smother him, trying to kill him as a, as a child. Um, and he was confused about the uh, reality of this apparent um, experience. And um, in his case, this destabilized him. Um, he had uh, sort of idolized his, his father and had a complex relationship with his mother. Um, who was negative about the father they they divorced and um, and so there was a literal split there, but his he, he sort of split his emotions in favor his of his father and his attachment to his father, so to have this vision was very disturbing and inconsistent with that um, uh you know um positive. Uh, feelings towards his father. So this is the, the kind of example of complexity in the process where rather than it be a very positive, euphoric, blissful experience with, you know, fully conscious content playing out that that isn't surprising in any way, you know, it might be sort of pondering uh, on the loss of a loved one where you you knew that you'd lost them and you you were in the process of letting go. Um, this was more of a surprise, you know, it was material that if real, um, he'd repressed from his conscious awareness and now it had come up and, and it was difficult and he didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, and if you, if you put it into numbers, his depression score for a, Let's see, I think maybe two weeks or so after the dosing session actually increased. After an initial drop, it jumped right up. And that was him processing this difficult material. And so I think people need to understand that that's why we do this work with um, thorough psychological support, why we do things like advise against self-medicating with psychedelics. You know, I could say something a little bit flippant, like people can get away with that, but getting away with it isn't really good enough um, because these complex experiences and cases do happen. 
And when they do, even though they might be outliers, you know, anomalies, um, when they do happen, they're very real and, and important for people and, and they can um, really set them back. And sometimes, you know, um, very serious things can happen. In, in Andy's case, I, mean, I can name him because he, he has spoken publicly about that experience. Um, Robin, couldn't we say that that could have been, I don't know what the end result was, but that could have been an extremely positive experience if the therapist who was with the person who uncovered the trauma or the sexual trauma uh, was able to then use the reliving of the emotional experience as a therapeutic activity in order to release him from the shame and guilt and what other anxieties whatever else he had that was stuffed into that little box for so many years. And of course, in some way, putting pressure on the whole psychological system, because it's not as if part of us is unaware totally that we've got something stuffed into a box somewhere, unless one wants to believe that we're capable of 100% uh, suppression without any uh, antenna sending out messages. Is that clear? Yeah, well, it is. I would say that's the ideal, um, is that you have therapists uh, available before, during, and after who have done their own deep work, um, are sufficiently experienced and trained to deal with such things as the recovery of repressed trauma in Andy's case it wasn't um it wasn't a memory of sexual abuse but it was a very very serious physical abuse yes yes we assume it was real but there's this very delicate and tricky question um partly linked in with some of the history around depth psychotherapy psychoanalysis specifically around um you know, controversy and questions around recovery of, of memories and whether um, there are occasions where those memories are false, uh, imagined rather than real. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think what, what happened with us, and we had, you know, mental health professionals, in Andy's case, a clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist who were his guides. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, it wasn't clear and compelling to any of us whether the experience was real or not. Also, he real, real in the sense of having literally. Yes, I understood. Right. Real. Yeah. Rather than um, rather than suppressed, imagined uh, uh, yeah. insult. And I think what happened because, you know, to my knowledge, uh, the clinical psychologist and, and the psychiatrist hadn't had training in depth psychotherapy. Ah. Uh-huh. Um, and so it wasn't really clear to any of us quite what the procedure was for this case. You know, Andy's account was told to us only after the event as well. He didn't relay it in real time as it was playing out. Um, and so it was a very tricky case. And we sort of learnt on the job, you might say. And I think now, these days, 
people might be a little wiser to these to these experiences to these possibilities and i think going forwards we might do a better job in the training around the possibility of such things yeah you see where i'm coming from as a clinician myself is that at some point in treating a person i'd like to help them get to the most bothersome thing in their psyche to the stuff that's the scariest because that's the stuff that's probably causing the most trouble. And if these psychedelic medicines give me a tool to reach in with the patient and access that material, then that's not an adverse effect unless the person isn't treated properly and that material is allowed to come out without guidance and then they're sort of stuck with this shocking stuff, which is an adverse effect, hmm. right? Well, well, I agree, but it's one of those cases that highlights where the skills and the expertise of the therapists really truly come into yes. play yes. And in those very complex cases. So I guess that flippant remark that you can get away with it I think that's true in the majority of cases until you hit these complex yes. cases. And, yes. then, and then the skills and the experience and the yes. expertise really matters, which means perhaps, you know, going forward to have some access, which is the kind of thing that we brought in in subsequent trials, um, access to a very experienced mentor figure, you know, who has seen it all um, um, and can provide supervision of our guide team um so that you know we're better educated and can lean on that experience when such complex and difficult cases and also to be able to lean on your research because that story is an important story about a particular kind of person of which there are many right mm. so i could f foresee that story influencing for example the little piece of paper that's all rolled up tiny that you get with your medication and you unroll it someday and it lists many characteristics, which if you have, this is not the medicine for you, just like we do with other medicines. But right, mm -hmm. you, what you're doing is adding to our body of knowledge about various cases. You also brought us some very, I know that you, you acknowledge that it was a small N, but you brought us some significant information about post-psychedelic experience anxiety. Tell yeah. us about that, Robin. Yeah, well, that was, um, that was kind of off the back of, uh, you know, there was some journalistic work on um, complex cases uh, with psychedelic um, therapy, some of it, you know, um, in ceremonial context, but also some of it in trials as well. Specifically, it was the the hot period around the the Power Trip series, um, and it just got me thinking and reflecting. And um, I thought that it would be good practice um, to place the focus of things on negative responses, in a sense, to do something positive with a difficult 
time and see what we could learn. I, I guess it was a period of self-reflection, thinking, what have we missed, you know? And um, maybe we'd find out if we very consciously and intentionally looked at negative psychological responses. So that was the motivation. Um, and then we we did a survey project initially to get a bunch of cases. And then we invited, in a sense, the most interesting, the most complex, the most serious. We invited those individuals to do interviews with two of our staff. Um, and those interviews were pretty lengthy, about an hour, I think, on average. And uh, just went into the minutiae of the cases to see if we could glean any principles about um, contributing factors. And there are a few things came through. One was that, yes, the most prevalent aspect of worsening mental health presentation was anxiety. Um, I can't quite remember the proportion, but it was in the range of maybe 70, 80% of the cases were reporting it was anxiety specifically that had increased after the psychedelic experience. I think in, actually since that, I, I thought yeah. I thought I saw in one of your studies it said eighty seven percent. Really? Well, that could have been it. That could have been it. And and actually, it's replicated recently. Jules Evans and his team have oh. done some similar work, and again, it was that symptom domain. I mean, anxiety is kind of like the most generic sort of negative space of, of mental health presentation, the most common. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, maybe it's that. And, you know, if it's more severe, it's often on top of the anxiety, there might be something more specific, you know. Um, but anxiety was the most prevalent in both of those studies, where both of those studies focused the telescope, the microscope, specifically on negative psychological responses. Mm -hmm. um, did we learn anything new? Is a very good question. Mm -hmm. because That's what we want to know. It, yeah, it mostly reinforced what we already suspected around um, set and setting, um, that these cases were much more likely um, if they occurred without anyone supervising the session, like a sober sitter or guide. Um, most of them had happened in conjunction with a so-called bad trip or challenging psychological experience. Um, there was some intriguing things that we've since also replicated. One was um, young age as a factor. And we've seen that in other more quantitative analyses. Young age seems to be a, an elevated risk factor. Um, not knowing dosage, not knowing purity, taking too high a dose when you have some impression of what the dose is, but you know, suspecting a kind of overdosing in a sense, um, in the sense that the effects were too strong, too intense for the individual. Um, uh, let's see, was there anything else? Some uh, mixing of drugs as well. I mean, this work was done it's very sort of real world, naturalistic. Um, mm -hmm. It's not from control mm -hmm. studies. It's from taking psychedelics in the so-called wild. Mm -hmm. um, and there are grades of, of wildness, if you want. As well as grades um, of the stuff itself. <laughs> yeah, quite. Impurity yeah. And, and so on. So, you know, it kind of highlighted some risk factors that we already suspected. But I think the exercise was worthwhile because it uh, gets it more into the conversation. And, you know, as I think we're doing right now, 
with um, all the increased interest, increased investment, a lot of journalistic interest and hype that goes with that, the conversation can get a little too positive and perhaps not sufficiently well qualified and informed. And so people misunderstand um, what this is. They think they can cure whatever, you know, psychopathology, mental illness um, with just the drug itself. And then they can run into quite serious trouble sometimes. So, you know, it was useful in, in that respect for just bringing a bit of balance into the conversation around psychedelics and their therapeutic potential. Robin, I interviewed a man the other day named Justin Townsend, who has a center in Jamaica where he um, administers uh, psilocybin three different doses over a week-long period to people who come and spend the week. And they do it in groups of 12. And they start with three to five grams. And then the second time they take seven to nine or even 10 grams. And then the third time they may take as many as 15 grams of psilocybin. And he's collecting some information. He says that the research that we scientists are doing around the world has a big question mark over it because it's being done in rooms, in buildings. And the very setting which the scientists are saying is so important is a negative for all that research because he would never think of putting somebody in a room, laying them down on a bed, having two people sit there and then give them a psychedelic medicine because it's it's an improper administration of the medicine. Mm. What do you think about that? Well, I've got a few thoughts. So one is that in a treatment study to give three doses within a week would feel excessive. It would feel too much drug within a short period of time, mm -hmm. perhaps too much emphasis on drug and not enough on the supportive uh, psychotherapy and processing, which sometimes I think for good reasons, for safety and, and deep work, needs a bit of time, needs a little bit of, you know, lay off the, the drug and do a bit more contemplation and working through. I suspect it's being done for financial and pragmatic reasons. Well, he, he's, to get they're doing therapy sessions in between the days that they're taking the psilocybin and then they have some kind of group process that goes on afterwards on zoom but i think they also encourage people very strongly to get hooked up with a therapist to do the rest of the ongoing the ongoing work but the question i okay. that, that i thought was a very interesting one was his questioning our administration process because of where it takes place. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm questioning his practice. Um, well, they, mo they does, both might, uh, maybe they're both questionable. We need something even better. I don't know, right. Well, to, to be fair, I think it's, it's quite fair and reasonable to say 
we know nothing of their results, as in we know nothing of their evidence, we know nothing of the transparency in their process. So while we can speak to the science that's been published, we publish in quite a bit of detail the procedure and protocol. Um, We do publish, you know, all, all types of the responses in quite a lot of detail. So there's very good transparency and clarity there. And the important point is, you know, the results are pretty impressive and have catalyzed all of the current interests. You know, Michael Pollan's book being resting on the published uh, science and so on. Um, so it doesn't seem clear from the data, from the evidence that the environments that we provide for people, which are very supportive with music listening throughout, mental health professionals, you know, before, during and after, looking after people. Um, we have very nice aesthetics and the low lighting and uh, aspects of nature brought into the controlled environment. It's not clear from the actual evidence that it's a problem. So, you know, I guess when you have a retreat with 13 or so people getting doses up to 15 grams, did I yeah, hear but I, magic I, mushroom? But I, I think I, I, I sent us on a red herring talking about his program because I'm not meaning to or to test the efficacy. I'm more interested in that one particular point about the nature of, 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 our, of, of our setting for science, yeah. for science, because I can, why I resonated to his, to his comment, uh, Robin, is because I've been self-experimenting with psychedelics uh, for f- over 50 years, uh, and I've experimented with just about everyone imaginable. And I doubt very much if I would ever take a psychedelic in a room with a bed and with just a room, maybe with a window, and stay in the room the whole time. I mean, I might as an experiment, but in terms of the way I typically do it, I, I want a very pleasant atmosphere. I want to be able to look at nature if I open my eyes. I want to see the ocean if I open my eyes. I want to be able to feel expansive. And if I want to go into a room kind of situation, I close my eyes and put eye shades on and go deep inside. But I still prefer to do it in a quiet, naturalistic setting than sort of what we call a room. If you know, you, you, yeah, I think, honestly, to be honest, Richard, I think there's too much projection on this room as something problematic it, it it's quiet the music's beautiful um played on a good sound system and the lighting is low and there is nature it's ple- it's a um, you call it pleasant is it a pleasant color I, I think it's more that the patients would call it pleasant i mean it's it's created curated with a lot of good supportive uh-huh, intention uh-huh. well that's so it's kind of, that's important information because he may have yeah. a view based on what's been shown on television, which is a pretty sterile room in a building at Johns Hopkins, and, and it looks really sterile, and that's not a good image. You're, you're painting yeah. more of a, you know, a, like the room you're in or the room I'm in right now, which are what you might call cozier, a little more yeah. user-friendly. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what uh, rooms have been seen, but I've seen the Hopkins one. It's, it's pretty nice. It's probably nicer still when they dim the lights 
truly for a session mm-hmm. you know i saw sort of daytime lighting and so on but they're a very you know experienced and professional team that have published great results so again i'm a scientist and and i'm giving it to you straight yeah. that you know, the evidence is pretty compelling for this for this room i mean in, in terms of adverse events yes. it is a fair question to us please thank you you know are those more likely when you're dosing very high a larger number of people without the same ratio of professional um, psychological support to patient or, mm-hmm. or participant or client. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm sorry, but I have to say it. I wonder whether sometimes it's being done for a, you know, economic reasons rather than quality care for an individual to be dosing 12, 13 people with 15 grams of magic mushrooms, for example, these big doses done within a week period feels quite aggressive, I, I think, as a, as a treatment model. It's not the way we've done it in our control trials. I, yeah. I, love, I love how you British are so diplomatically understated. Uh, Robin, I, 50 more years I've been around these things. I've never heard of anybody doing 15 grams of mushrooms before. That's a dramatic number in my book. Seven to eight is considered heroic by many people, right? Yeah. Right. And heroic is putting a positive spin on yeah, it. Right. You know, well said. One person thinks heroic is another's reckless, perhaps, but yeah, that's very intensive, a very intensive treatment. Yeah. What was the so, range of doses you all used? Well, it's become relatively. Um, fixed around 25 milligrams psilocybin. So we don't know well enough. People often uh, claim a certain um, milligram of psilocybin to grams of mushroom translation, but but the work hasn't been done well enough for us to make that translation reliable. So the kind of thing that you hear is that it's um, 25 milligrams psilocybin pure psilocybin might equal something like three and a half grams of, of yeah, that's what material. i think i've heard from uh nick cozy you know nick yeah well nick's good yeah 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 so he's the kind of person you might want to trust on that. yes um, he's a close friend but that, right and there's quite a bit of variability is the problem he might have told you that as well that you know different strains of mushrooms is quite reliable unreliable the um, the concentration of psilocybin and psilocin in the in the mushrooms that creates a bit of a problem. So you have this large error margin when people are dosing with mushrooms, mm-hmm. which is a bit of so to be going up into such massive doses. There, I wonder how strong those mushrooms are in terms of the psilocybin content. Point well taken. Point very well yeah. taken. So, what's a higher dose in milligrams uh, of the uh, psilocybin that you use psilocybin well it seems to hit a kind of asymptote to sort of plateau around about 30 milligrams where you're not really getting and much more of of the intensity of the sort of positive therapeutic aspects of the experiences and a lot of emphasis there on these mystical or spiritual type experiences emotional breakthrough is more the kind of way that we frame it um you know among colleagues um you you tend to hit a kind of plateau with that 
um, experience around 30 milligrams. And then if you go above, you start to bring in, you start to trade in terms of getting more confusion um, with the experience. So yeah, we think 2530 is, is kind of the sweet spot. And if you give any more than that, 25, 30 milligrams yes. psilocybin, yes. Your, you go above that, you you just risk having people who are sort of dis- disorganized in thought, confused, and aren't necessarily getting the the um, more positive uh, aspects of, of the experience, including the insight, you know, the psychological insight isn't necessarily facilitated by going above those those doses that are pretty high. Would you hazard a guess on a dosage appropriate specifically used for creativity? It's tricky, you know, because the the evidence for enhancements in creativity um, is a bit mixed. We've got a lot of anecdotes and cases there, um, but it's a very hard thing to test in the study. So... um, I know that's not a clear response, um, but I'm waiting to see a really well done study that does actually show enhancements in in creativity uh, in relation to the psychedelic experience. Um, so I don't know. You, I mean, the big doses, 25, 30 milligrams, do promote psychological insight. Um, typically, we score that the next day or participants score it. Um, but they can also do it, you know, one week later or a month later. But we have seen in predictive models that, yes, the big doses promote, well, they promote emotional breakthrough, then that promotes psychological insight. So the the evidence for creativity, I, I think most of it, I think if we're being really fair and quite strict as we should be scientifically, um, then it, I, I think it's fair to describe it more as an interesting hypothesis um, than something really well established. Part of the tricky issue is that it's very difficult to test creativity to kind of squeeze it into a study. When it happens, it's usually more a thing that sort of happens all of a sudden almost or seems to. Um, so it's quite hard to pin down and study. And maybe that's why the evidence, the clear evidence for psychedelics promoting creativity is a, is a bit thin on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we do have clear and quite compelling evidence of psychedelics promoting psychological insight. So a deeper awareness of oneself, one's what, the causes of, of one's um, mental health uh, challenges. Um, and, uh, you know, psychedelic therapy experiences fostering um, experiences of insight seem to be very important for then advancing people's mental health and improving it. And so that's a kind of creativity, I think. Um, yeah. Um, so It's a creative act, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, it, I think the hypothesis is interesting. It's just designing a good study to really demonstrate it. I'm aware of, you know, Jim Fadiman's work in the, in the 60s around that hypothesis. But again, I think if it was to be tested these days, it would probably be tested in a slightly different way um, to try and demonstrate the uh, the effect. So um, yeah, more work to be done there, I think. So 
what research would you like psychedelic science to be doing that needs to be done? Yeah. What's on your list? Tell oh, us well, one things. jumps straight to mind, and it, it's absurd that it hasn't been tested so far. You can kind of explain it, um, but it's still absurd in a sense, which is that we assume that psychedelic therapy is a combination treatment. You know, it's implicit to psychedelic scientists in the know, like me, that you must provide psychological support for the experience. It's not a drug alone treatment. It's very much as we were talking about earlier with the setting and I got a little bit defensive about our rooms, you know, because they are, they're, they're, they're created, create, curated in, a, in very much with, you know, supportive aesthetics in mind. Um, and so that's our belief and we hold it very strongly and we do it both for efficacy and safety probably safety more than anything, thinking if you're going to have these very profound, often the most profound and unusual, often very personally meaningful um, experiences, you know, up there with the, the most intense of your life, if you're going to have that, then you have to have the context right. You know, you have to have the support around it and you have to have the right safe environment. So, um, we hold that assumption very strongly, but haven't tested it. And and I said, you know, it's absurd, but also quite quite explainable because none of us have wanted to sort of um, jeopardize safety in a sense by dialing down on that that good quality of support. But what that leaves us with is a untested assumption. And when you don't, when you fail to test strong assumptions like that, and assumptions that are there universally across all of the modern trials with psychedelic therapy, then people start to doubt the assumption because it hasn't been tested. And that's what's happening right now. So people think that maybe you can dial down on the therapy. And, and when it's expensive, which it is, they want to dial it down because they want to dial down that, that sort of extra expense. They would Robin, like, yeah. I think it can be C, all of the above. I think the assumption that science is making is correct for the vast majority of people. But I think the question that's being raised is applicable to a smaller percentage of people, such as myself. I have benefited both from taking psychedelics with a therapist and then having sessions afterwards, and I have benefited by taking psychedelics all by myself. And I have learned things that have been helpful in my life, dramatically helpful in my life, in both circumstances. And I wouldn't put one before the other, but I would say that going into these sessions, I was a trained psychologist. I've had a lot of experiences. I um, had a, a lot of uh, personal psychotherapy. I had practiced meditation. I had practiced centering and breathing. So I had a lot of tools to use, but I'm not the only one. There's a percentage of us that I think fall into this category. And so those who are questioning the scientific assumption are, have a good question. 
with regard to this particular percentage, of which I can't tell you how many there are of us, mm. but I know there are some because I have friends who have done the same thing that I have, and they too have benefited dramatically from just, self. Yeah. Self, uh, the, the reason why I raise it, and it, it sort of ties in with your, your introduction, is that, you know, if the messaging is that the supportive context uh, maybe doesn't matter that much, then we go to a situation maybe a little bit more like in the 60s where, you know, some of the simple messaging is, you know, just take the drug, yes. tune in and... and, and Drop out. Yes, yes, and, that's right. And, that's right. And that's why I said the vast majority of people, I think, fit in with what science yeah. is... And I, is, is, yeah, is and I think we're we're on the cusp of you know major sort of societal changes around psychedelics with changes in policy. Then um, it very much brings this question to the fore that um, should we legalize psychedelics? Should people be able to go down to you know Oakland and score a big dose of magic mushrooms just with a little donation and uh, take them home or take them wherever they want downtown? Um, at the weekend and, and expect to have really positive psychological responses. And, and we know that that's a very risky um, message and policy that could easily crash and collapse the whole thing. So it's really with that in mind, I, I guess people could look on some of my messaging and say, oh, he's trying to gatekeep this space. And, but that's, you know, you don't want it to go awry. And, and when it's on the cusp of scaling up massively, it's already scaling up in the last 10 years. I think there's some stats on uh, first-time use of psychedelics going up. Um, I think four... Oh, I saw that on double yeah. the number of people in one year in psilocybin from 3% to 6% of the American population. Yeah. But I think what you're talking about, Robin, is a line between protection and parental to what extent do we want to treat the public as children and and to what extent are we protecting them yeah to what ex to what extent i raise the question to what extent does a person have a constitutional right to take anything that grows in the ground or is made in a lab so long as they don't hurt another human being yeah, but you know, children are very vulnerable and, and require a degree. A degree. I, I didn't say children. I wasn't including children. Okay. No, but By just any as a, means. But as an analogy, you know, bringing up the analogy. Oh, oh the one about treating them as children. Yeah, yeah I see yeah. what you mean. Yeah, 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 and they are vulnerable. You know, people under psychedelics are very vulnerable. So, I guess very vulnerable. Yeah. So it's with that in mind that some degree of protection. I think is probably responsible, especially when we are thinking about going from zero to, you know, a hundred in a very short space of time, like going from complete ban on psychedelics as schedule one to um, opening them up as legal and freely available for everyone. It just I have a question, Robin, about, do you think that the psychedelics will have a f an effect, and I'm asking you this personally, really, than you as a scientist. Do you, do you see psychedelics having an effect on people's political positions? Oh, gosh. 
you know, I'm such a scientist that it's so easy to default to the scientific position. And I sort of feel like I have to because because I, okay. I know a little bit in that space because, you know, as a scientist, you turn a hunch into a test. Uh, and so that's what we did. So, sure, we've had the hunch and heard the idea that psychedelics might um, liberalize people um, and... Um, you know, make move them on the political spectrum, perhaps away from conservatism towards liberalism. So we tested it, and typically the axes for political perspective are conservatism on the right, I guess, to liberalism on the left, and then you've got another axis, libertarianism versus authoritarianism. What yes. we found across two or three studies is a more reliable movement towards libertarianism away from authoritarianism with it with a, it's a little unpredictable as to whether you do truly move people towards liberalism so that was kind of surprising so it's mm -hmm. more reliable it seems that you move people towards a kind of libertarianism anti-authoritarianism which i i thought was interesting you know do i think that's real now on more of a sort of qualitative level what's my sort of feeling um yeah i think there probably is an intrinsic directionality that we've sampled there that people do gravitate towards being more free thinking um and um yeah and less sort of conformist um after uh -huh. psychedelic experiences um I imagine it's very dependent on context, on social factors. Uh -huh. um, so, but I think there's there's likely something, something there. Yes, I do. With, let's talk about vulnerability, and suggestibility or hyper suggestibility. Has there been some research done on that, of indicating that people under the influence of psychedelics? are more easily persuaded or more easily suggestible? In other words, can they be more easily taken over if they were duped into taking these things? And it's, you see, you know where I'm going. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. So there is some evidence uh, on that, a few different studies. There was some in the 60s. Uh, we took some inspiration from that when I was working in London and brought a suggestibility paradigm, a test, into an LSD study that we did. And we did see an enhancement in um, imaginative suggestibility. So what we did in that was we described scenarios um, that you were meant to imagine and sort of act out. So we said, for example, put your hands out. I'm going to be loading on heavy dictionaries onto your hands. And then you could see if people's hands drop down as they're being you know, told, having this scenario suggested to them. And it, and there was an enhancement when the LSD was on board versus placebo, so it does seem that people are more suggestible and under psychedelics. The other thing is that we've seen in our treatment trials that those who are most suggestible have the best response to psychedelic therapy as well. We showed that recently with psilocybin therapy for depression. So suggestibility, which ties in very much with plasticity. Plasticity, the dictionary definition, is the ability to be shaped or molded. So it means malleability. Mm -hmm. And um, suggestibility is very close, I think, to that 
shapeability of a mind, you know, um, and psychedelics seem to promote that under the drug and those who are most plastic and suggestible at baseline are also actually those who show the best response to psychedelic therapy. That, that really um, is a statement about the taking of psychedelics in groups because, yeah. because there's, there can be a, a group influence on a person or that's a suggestible person yeah. which is different than take very different than taking it alone but of course for financial reasons alone group therapy is being looked at and i by the way i didn't mention i think your point is very well taken before about economic motivation for some of these places that are springing up there's no question about that yeah. and some of the prices are really like you know off the chart yeah uh, and that is going on uh, i'm going to move on to something else sure um you want to say a few words about harm reduction? Yeah, happy to. Well, gosh, uh, you know, I guess having played a, a little role in the way uh, things are upticking with psychedelic science and medicine, you know, I guess I've become more conscious of um, of uh, how how I want it to go and where I think it's vulnerable, and so. Um, you know, when I think that people can get hold of psychedelics very freely and maybe don't always do it in a well-informed way, that bothers me. Uh, rewind about three years or so, I created a bunch of harm reduction videos. Um, I looked into different ways in which I'd made, make that material available and in the end just essentially gave it away, put it up on my website. Uh, Hope so open source entirely open source no paywall whatsoever mm -hmm. um i don't make any special claims on it uh i can't even say that it's solidly evidence-based i mean it's arisen from the research i've done but i haven't tested that material and seen how it's impacted on people so i'm not gonna claim i'm certainly not gonna overclaim about how good it is but it's in my mind it's I think I probably am sufficiently well-informed having done a number of trials, worked very closely with different mentors, either underground therapists or um, the likes of Bill Richards, you know, having done therapy, psychedelic therapy for a number of years, who I consulted when creating this material. I think it's, it's probably a well enough informed about as more or less about as good as anything that's sort of freely available in the public domain. And so I just wanted people to have it um, because I worry a little bit and uh, I would rather that more people educate themselves about how to have a um, psychedelic experience in a responsible way, trying to mitigate risk. Um, so that's why I did it. And I, I put into it a lot of tips kind of around psychedelics rather than necessarily specifically about psychedelics. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of Buddhism in there, secular Buddhism. I borrowed a lot of quotes from the likes of Thich Nhat Hanh, Jack Cornfield, Stephen Batchelor, which are more sort of like 
I don't know, wisdom teachings than specifically about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, if I think, you know, if a loved one who had never taken a psychedelic before is vulnerable um, and goes, goes into this, you know, I'd, I sort of created this material for, with those people in mind that I'd rather they have access and, and yeah. You referenced that these um, harm reduction videos are on your website. Mm -hmm. So tell us just a little bit about your website. Then I've got another question I want to ask. Yeah, you know, something I had to do, I had to get it done. So I did carhartharrislab.com. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate in the position I have at UCSF that I have that freedom. I can, I can do this. Um, so I put my papers on there. I list all my collaborators. I provide a little bit of background. I put all these open source videos on there. There's about 25 of them. Um, oh. yeah, I put some like archive interviews that I've done. If it's all right with you, Richard, I might, I might put this up, if, but I'll ask permission, you know, so I just link in things that are already in the public domain online and it becomes a kind of hub for, for that material. Um, yeah. Robin, I'd be, I'd be honored if you put this interview on your website and I certainly will put it on mine. Um, as you know, um, Based on your research to date, make a few statements to the psychedelic guides who are listening to this interview. What do you want to tell them? Well, honestly, they could tell me a lot. You know, <laughs> I am not a psychedelic guide. Um, I'm a scientist. So, you know, they're doing the heart work. In, in a sense, I'm doing more of the head work. So, um i take a lot from from them um and um you know i think we can learn from each other maybe that would be my message is that you know as i want to learn from you and i do i do get this vibe from from trained therapists and training therapists that that they want to learn from me too so yes. there's a reciprocity there that i very yes. much value i've even found that when i have gone more into the, you know, places where there's a longer heritage. Like I, I was very lucky to go to the Amazon and um, sit in kind of as the resident scientist in a um, uh, pretty authentic um, Shipibo led ceremony. There was a um, someone singing a Shipibo person singing in Shipibo. Um, during the session, singing the Icaros, this is ayahuasca, um, and also a, um, you know, Curandero um, leading who, who was uh, working with the, um, the Shipibo person who came in. So it was uh, fascinating, but my point was that um, when we spoke, I, can, I can't speak Spanish, but it was translated. I'd like to think that there was a really quite sweet mutual respect where I was very genuinely respectful of the way they were doing things and intrigued. Mm -hmm. They were also intrigued about what I knew, you know, having looked in the brain. And, and so I, I really liked that. I really hoped that that kind of 
reciprocity and sharing is something that we can maintain going forwards. Sometimes, you know, I, I wonder whether the scientist is seen as a sort of archetype, you know, maybe cold, unfeeling. Um, there's maybe some truth in that to an extent in that a scientist tries to be objective. Um, but, you know, there could be a projection that the scientist could also be hostile or an, or an enemy to the therapeutic process, and that would be so far wide of the mark. Um, so, you know, I guess trust and reciprocity requires an openness to really understand where each party is coming from. And so maybe there's something around that theme of, of trying to understand each other, mm -hmm. each other's agenda and approach and so on, and learn from each other. Thank you. In Amanda Fielding's digital imaging of the brain on LSD, um, which I'm sure you've seen, <laughs> we all have. Yeah. From a science perspective, what are we to make of that difference between the brain on LSD and the brain not on LSD? A dramatic well, representation. And what do we do with it? Well, we try and understand it. I know that material yes. pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So help us help us understand it. Sure. Well, so, I mean, we did a few brain imaging studies and the one that you're thinking about is probably the one with fMRI. Um, you know, you learn different things from different modalities. We use fMRI, MEG, EG, but, you know, the image that really people seem to get a lot from was the one with the two circles and the communication going on between That's right. systems in the brain. And it is a finding that we've seen again and again. We saw it more recently with DMT. I'm now seeing that other teams are seeing something quite similar. There's going to be a paper coming from a team in Maastricht. What is it? What is it? Okay, so, you know, really it is two principles that could be collapsed into one. First, the two principles, one is network or system disintegration under drug. So a number of brain systems or networks that do different things ordinarily, like take the visual system for seeing things, processing visual input, the motor system for moving the body, and then higher level systems for like a higher level abstract cognition. Those systems break down within themselves, the bits that make up the system become sort of decoupled from each other under drug, but they also, in decoupling from the regions that they usually speak to within their given system, they start to breach their given system and start to talk more freely to other regions in the brain, including regions belonging to systems that they ordinarily don't talk to so much. And there's a kind of, there is a kind of shift um, or drift away from the constraints of brain anatomy, um, where the functional connectivity, the communication in the brain that we see in the brain activity um, starts to move away from some of its hard anatomical constraints. Let's try and say it a little bit more sim simply. Yeah, it is as if that the quality of communication in the brain becomes more global, more varied. I call it more entropic. 
that's formally true as well. Um, so it's harder to predict. Um, it's richer, more complex, and more open and more flexible. So these are all descriptors that that kind of arise from from the actual data and how we understand it functionally, opening up of brain activity and communication in the brain. Are you getting that uh, data from administrations of psilocybin, LSD, or something else? We saw it first with psilocybin. That's the two circles. Um, uh, went into Michael Pollan's book in, in the centerfold, I think, those two circles where, where under psilocybin it's much more color across the brain. We saw it under LSD in a few different ways. We've seen it with DMT. Um, I don't know if anyone else has looked at another psychedelic. We didn't see it under MDMA, interestingly. When we you did? did? We did not, no. You did not? Yeah, so it could be a not signature. Technical. could be a signature of the classic psychedelics that open. Yes, yes. Yeah. So given all those extremely positive consequences of taking the medicine that you just described, I mean, those were really glorious descriptions of what's happening with the brain in terms of contacting more areas, breaching moats, moving around. It's almost like you, a person who's Greek suddenly become, learns six other languages and can go out into the world and communicate. With all that positive, wouldn't we want to take it on a regular basis without necessarily having problems, pathology, or things that we want to treat and heal, but simply to gain all those descriptions that you shared with us? Well, they do sound kind of positive. I can see why people, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, flexible, who wouldn't want a flexible mind? Open, who wouldn't want an open mind, you know? Um, there, there's a useful qualifier to say that there is some data that maybe maybe acute psychotic states would show some of this quality as well. Um, an infant brain shows this quality um, and it tends to go away as we mature into adulthood. And, you know, the likes of Wordsworth uh, wax lyrical about the romance of, of sort of the infant mind, you know, heaven lies about us in our infancy and so on. So, um so that's positive. But, uh, I guess my point is that what would it be to inhabit a permanently tripping mind and brain state? And uh, I would just um, caution that maybe, maybe it's not all, you know, not all positive. <laughs> well, you know, um, Amanda took 100 micrograms a day for 90 days in her youth. And um, she's still functioning. <laughs> she is, isn't she? Yeah. You know, and, and uh, Christian Bache took uh, 93 journeys with LSD, every one of them over 500 micrograms, and he published on that. Mm. So uh, those people, I think Amanda's closer to what we're talking about. She wanted to find out what it was like doing it every single day, even though... I don't know if she knew at the time about depleting her her serotonin uh, 
and perhaps other neurotransmitters. And I don't know. So, you know, it, it was a one person experiment. But I think it raises an interesting question because certainly people are taking all other kind of medicines in this world on a regular basis. They are arranging you know, a wide variety of things. In fact, one time, one time I went to the hospital when I was, I think, about 82 years old, and they gave me an interview, and the nurse was in shock that I didn't take any prescription medicines. She said she'd been working there 35 years, and she'd never run into anybody who wasn't taking prescription medicines, mm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah, so. Well, well, you see where I'm coming from in terms of, I mean, I, you know, it's, we're talking about sort of risky, it's a risky kind of conversation because it could be seen as advocating for uh, something the pharmaceuticals try to do, which is get us to take something on a regular basis as an annuity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe some of the benefits that you could get from psychedelic therapy. I have seen people that I very much respect um, turning more to spiritual practice. Uh, you know, the likes of um, Ram Dass and uh, Jack Cornfield, where there wasn't a reliance on psychedelics. It's more like the psychedelic experiences had provided some insight and then it was picked up and developed more with patient practice uh, than necessarily going to, to the drug again. Not to rule out the drug, but, but just to sort of um, maybe put more of the emphasis and the focus on the development of, of uh, sure. wisdom and self-inquiry. And then you might we might see Fadiman's uh, uh, approach or what he has uh, revealed as sort of a compromise, which is the microdose, mm. which is very interesting. Yeah, um, you know, I can see the logic uh, behind how lubricating the mind a little bit could exactly. You know, we don't have do we, we're going to have. Research coming up on the microdose? Yeah, yeah. There's going to be more and more at the moment. It's a bit mixed out there. Um, jury's out a little bit, but uh, we shall see. I think that there's some interesting results that will favor the uh, the efficacy of microdosing coming through. Um, you know, it's another approach. It's another way of doing it. And um, I, I do hear the the rationale and the case, um, you know, motivating that, that approach. So let's see. I, I, I suspect that the way microdosing will work best is when it is still twinned with something. Uh, I'm not so sure you can bypass any real psychological work and just rely on the very low doses done repeatedly. So I suspect it's more that the microdoses promote some plasticity. You twin that with some kind of psychological work or some training, mm -hmm. and then the two in combination can work very well and improve people. That's what I suspect. What do you think of Rupert's work on morphic resonance? Interesting, <laughs> but I don't, I don't understand it well enough. I don't know what the mechanisms are underneath it. So I, I find it fascinating. I don't know quite what to make of it. But uh, I interviewed him here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics many years ago, and we talked about it. And since you're from England, of course, that's why, you know, I mentioned it to you. Uh, but uh, 
I find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Robin, it's a distinct pleasure uh, having you here today. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you, Richard. I've enjoyed it very much. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on another broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you we come to you with a new show every Tuesday at 9 o'clock in the morning. And everything is on the archive, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. And along with the material on Robin Carhart Harris's website, everything on our website is open source. No fee to you. So until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah.